0: Take your Bibles, if you will, and and let's go back to Romans chapter 8, and um, um, could I get that Dale, that machine? Oh, Uh, sorry, Jason, I'm only going to use it once, but maybe I don't need it. Um, Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, we've covered verse 31. Uh, I hope to look at verse 30. Let me read you those two verses tonight and then we'll, I'll explain. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, let me tell you what my plan is, um, Uh, really, (coughs) um, with verse 32. Uh, I'd like for us to spend three weeks on verse 32. And let me tell you why. Um, If you'll notice, if you'll take a look, um, just a casual look at verse 32, you'll discover that at the heart of that verse, he is talking about something that God has done. The specific thing that he's referring to is that God has given up his his own Son. Um, Now, uh, tonight is the 22nd of March, then we have the 29th and then the 5th of April, and then the next Wednesday we don't meet because it's the Wednesday before Easter. My my point is this, guys, we're three weeks out from Easter, and um, what you have at the center of verse 32 is a reference to the Father sacrificing the Son in the interest of his people. What you have is a reference to Good Friday or the crucifixion or uh, the, uh, in, in broader theological terms, you have a reference to the atonement. So what I thought we would do is just spend the night and the next week and then the next week talking about things surrounding the atonement. Um, we'll look at the text itself, but it's going to just just take us a little bit further uh, as we look at the broader subject of um, what God has accomplished in under the under the rubric or under the heading of the atonement, so that's what we're going to do for um, a couple of three weeks is just look at verse thirty two as it takes us into a discussion of the death of Christ. Now, take a look at verse thirty two um, Paul is up to something as he always is, but um, Uh, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, guys, um, as I said, Paul has made a a reference to what God has given. He's made a reference to the cross. Now, why do you think he's done this? Um, When when, uh, we are directed uh, by the Apostle Paul to think about what God gives, gave, what do you think Paul is trying to demonstrate? What do you think Paul is trying to prove? What is is Paul trying to get you to think about? What does Paul want you to contemplate? When he's he's making reference to what God gave, do you think it would be fair to say that Paul um, wants his readers, and thus us, that Paul would have us be convinced that we are loved now try to stay with my logic my logic is he is he is making reference to the the grand act of redemption um in uh, with the goal in mind of God's people being confident that they are loved uh and he's using this illustration this This quintessential illustration of his love, that is, in what he gave uh, for his people. All right. Now, having said that, why do you think God's people waver in believing that they're loved? Why is it important for Paul to remind you what all God has done as a display of his love for you? Why is it that he's concerned about that, or why, is, why do God's people struggle with believing that they're loved? Well, I would suggest to you that the reason that we uh, often wonder about whether God really loves somebody like us is because of, uh, there's a knowledge that we have of our own sin that perhaps nobody else has if uh, other people think we're rather clean and and um um prim and proper we know better we know what we have done we know what we did today we know about the things that we did last week that nobody else knows about and so it is an awareness and a and a consciousness of our own sin that that um shakes our certainty that we're really objects of his love. How could he love somebody who did that or does that or is still that that broken? So for the Apostle Paul, he sets out to assure you, to give you some level of confidence that you indeed are loved. Because the second reason that Christians have their hope shaken is their own sin. Their own daily knowledge of their own sin. We don't have to worry about anybody else's. We know our own Um And so because of an awareness of our own sin, there is this this constant um, assault on are we really um, people that God loves? Can he love somebody like me? Now, guys, um, what I've suggested is that verse 31, Paul deals with this idea of our security. He says, there is nothing... There is no amount of pain that will ever make you give up on the Lord. That's verse 31. So don't be concerned about that. Now, he comes to the second reason that we have our confidence shaken, our knowledge of our own sin, and so now he's going to try to address that. I've said all that to say that's what he's trying to address. He's trying to address this issue of our confidence in knowing that we indeed are the objects of God's love. And I say to you, my dear brother and sister, nothing is more important than that you should know, and that you should know beyond any measure of doubt, that it is impossible for the love of God toward you to ever change at all. Um, I want to suggest to you that the ground, The ground of confidence and security is our awareness and um, um, certainty that God loves me. The reason I put this up here is because I – guys, you've you've seen the little mathematical. This is pretty simple, and I I risk insulting you. But um, if A equals B – and B equals C, then C equals A. You remember that? You've heard that before. All right, if, if the grounds of all confidence um, is the love of God for me, and that leads me to my security, and I have been take, telling you for months on end, that the greatest motive to holy living is a sense of my own security. That is, um, and I've said this over and over again, I'm sorry to say it again, but guys, consider your own marriages. When is it that you're the most responsive to your spouse? When is it that you're most eager to do the most amount of good towards your spouse? When you feel most insecure in that relationship, or when you feel the most secure in it. I'm suggesting that um, you as a spouse are more prone to do good towards your spouse the more loved you feel. I am suggesting, guys, that security is the greatest grounds or the greatest motive for a holy living there is. Not fear, not guilt. Not trying to impose some kind of conviction on you from the outside in. That's called guilt. No. The greatest motive to holy living is an awareness that I am safe. I've been telling you that for months. So if the greatest motive to my holy living is my awareness of my security, then what is the greatest, I mean, what is the ground of my holy living? but a knowledge of the love of God. Um, I I hope you saw that logic there, guys. The love of God is the grounds of my security. An awareness that God loves me is my greatest uh, grounds of my own sense of safety, that my eternity is secure. All right? If the love of God equals security, and I'm saying that security or knowing that I'm safe eternally, is the greatest motive to holy living. If A equals B and B equals C, then C equals A. So this is, um, this is not uh, um, uh, empty theologizing, ladies and gentlemen. It is an awareness of this that leads us to this. It is an awareness that I am loved, and there is nothing that will... Change that, that prompts the greatest amount of holy living. The Christian is assured of his salvation, not because he's been assured of his own constancy. That is, my own consistent living. You can sense your safety, not because God said, well, you know, I know that you're always going to live a good life. No, guys, the reason that you can be um, uh, assured of your eternal well-being is not because you're consistent, but because God is. It's not your constancy that leads you to a a sense of safety. It is God's constancy. That is, that his love cannot change towards you. There's, There's no stronger argument that can be made about the constancy of his love towards you than what paul mentions in verse 32 there's not an there's not an argument available that is more proof of the constancy of god's love towards his people than what he has given Guys, the, the love of god is an it is so intense that it will not be deterred or thwarted even by the sinfulness of its objects. You know guys. God does not love me. Because Christ died for me. Christ died for me. Because God loves me. That's a. That's a. That's, a, that's an important distinction. Because the love of God has moved towards me. Um, and that love is a constant, unchangeable, everlasting, eternal love. Now, one of the places that I want to take you tonight, and and we're not going to stay there long, but um, everybody, well not everybody, but I think most of you know the story that's contained in Genesis chapter 22. You know the story of um, God coming to uh, Abraham and saying, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac on a a hill that I tell you about? Well, I want to suggest to you guys that one of the purposes of this whole event, of the sacrifice of Isaac, is so that Abraham could understand the point that is contained in verse 32. Now of course Abraham lived centuries before Paul wrote Romans 8:32, but let me let me show you what I'm trying to tell you. You know the story you know, the story, God comes to Abraham and says, listen, take your son, your only son, and go sacrifice him on a mountain that I tell you about. And so he picks up Isaac, the 10-year-old boy, and he takes him over to Mount Moriah, and he's about to sacrifice him. And the Lord stops him, Remember all that business. And, you know, they're walking up the hill, and, 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 um, and the little boy says, Daddy, I see the, the wood, and I see the, the fire, but, you know, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, well, don't worry, son. God will provide himself. He'll 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 take care of this. So he straps him on the altar and he, he pulls up the uh, brings up the knife. He's about to slay his own son and, and and God speaks from heaven. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now I know. And, and guys, here's what I want you to see in verse uh, twelve. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You got that little sentence right there? <laughs> now Change the story up, guys, and imagine, imagine that Abraham is now standing at the foot of Calvary and watching the father put his son to death. And Abraham says, now I know. Now I know, Father, that you love me because you did not withhold your only son. That's that's the message of Romans 8.32, guys. If God did not withhold, if he did not spare his own son, what conclusions can you draw? And the conclusions that you draw are fairly important to the way that you live out your life. Because the more I know that that love is not going to be yanked out from underneath me, the the more prone I am to live a life that's so pleasing. Guys, um, back to Romans 8. Paul's argument in Romans 8.32 is is an argument from the greater to the lesser. That is, if God has already done this for us, if he's already um, given the greater thing, how can he conceivably refuse... To do the lesser thing. If God has already given the dearest and the best, and and he gave the dearest and the best while we were still his enemies, um, how then will he not give the less or the lesser? The gift of giving Christ includes all the other gifts. Gang, if God gave up his most precious possession, why worry about the other things that so concerns? Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, gang, um, Paul is not content to tell you simply, uh, propositionally, God is love. Now, John does that, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul is not content to tell you that God is love. What he does is give you some facts, some events that demonstrate that God is love. Um, But he does not even stop with the bare facts. Later on, uh, Paul um, explains the facts to us. Um, he, He gives you an event and a fact that illustrates what he's trying to prove. And then he explains the facts and the events. Um, he's trying to tell you how to interpret the fact, the, the event. There's this, um, there's this, you don't need to turn to this. Um, there's this interesting statement. Do you remember the book of Nehemiah, um, where Nehemiah comes back and, um, he helps Israel build the wall around, uh, around Jerusalem. And so they've got it built and they've all gathered at this place and they're having this big festival and, and, um. This is in Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed down and yada, yada, yada. And, um, they, they, they stood out in the rain and listened to the word of God, read for like 12 hours. But here's the point. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. Guys, um, It's not enough to tell you about an event. It is necessary to tell you what that event means. Um, so that you can then make all the, the proper applications. You, you hear of the event and then you are told what the event means. That's called doctrine, folks. Um, you know, in some circles, it's quite fashionable to um, to say we don't, you know, we don't bother much with doctrine around here. Well, guys, um, if you desire to have a real sense of confidence and assurance in your own safety, then the firmer grasp that you have of Christian doctrine. The better off you're going to be. The greater your uh, sense of assurance and safety will be. Doctrine is simply explaining the meaning of the events. And that doctrine is called the atonement. Uh, all this, this, the extremes to which theologians go to give you, um, all of the ins and the outs of the, 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 uh, doctrinal uh, positions is for a purpose, guys. Doctrine is not some lofty thoughts about God. No. Doctrine is telling you how a personal God is related to some personal sinners and what that means to those personal sinners. And to say that you're not interested in that is to say that you're not interested in your own spiritual well-being. I'll tell you a story. Um, um I- I've told this story before, uh, but some of you have not heard this, but um, year, you know, and I, and I keep alluding to this event in my life, um, and I'm sorry for those of you who have heard it more than once, but, um, you, you know, Susan and I became Christians in 1970. We went out to seminary in 1972. I remember sitting in a class in seminary in and uh, the guy went around the class, and it was Pete Hammonds. I don't even know Pete Hammonds. But Pete Hammonds says, uh, how long have you people been Christians? And, and so I said, well, I've been a Christian about three years. And he looked at me and almost wept. He said, oh, my goodness gracious. We're about to cut you loose on the church. You know, you're going to go out and pastor a church, and you've been a Christian three years? You, you haven't been a Christian long enough. And I thought, well, he was right. <laughs> Um, but, but anyway, they did cut me loose on the church, and I, and I went down to a place in Ocala, Florida, and I pastored a church, started a church, uh, and stayed there for 10 years. Um, and it was nine and a half of the best years of my life. It was that last six months that almost killed us. And I mean, it almost killed us. Um, and, you, you know, it was, it was kind of pitiful. I was on the phone this morning in my office at home uh, with a pastor who's in another state. Um, and he is going through something that is, I just can't, I can't imagine. I, I'm just not tough enough. And I, and I, anyway, that's not the point. But um, anyway, we'd been at this church for, uh, for nine and a half years. And then things just began to come unraveled. And um, it, was, it was a lot of factors. Uh, one of the factors was my own sin. Um, but there's just a lot of factors. And, and you don't need to hear, I mean, you're not interested in all those facts, I'm sure. But in the midst of all this, my probably my greatest ally was a guy by the name of R. C. Sproul. Now, I think you've heard that name. Uh, R. C. was in uh, Orlando, I was in Ocala. He was about I don't know seventy miles away, and I mean he would call us from all over the country and saying, "Okay, what's happening now? What how you doing?" And you know he just and uh, there was a big meeting one night, and he got himself into the meeting, and and uh, just he was just my my. Greatest mentor, my biggest confidant, uh, my greatest ally, because he was he was tough. But uh, one night, in the it, as the thing kind of you know bottomed out. I mean, it just that's what susie and I kept wondering: when is it gonna be over? When is it? You know, and then you know, you'd wake up the next day, and then something else would. This was kind of funny. This guy that called me today. Part of the issue, part of the issue in his church is a visit. That the church got from the fire marshal. They didn't prepare us for that one in the, in seminary training, you know, how to handle the fire marshal, you know. Uh, but, I mean, the part of his life is exploding because of the fire marshal came over. I can't believe it. Anyway, but, uh, you know, you just keep wondering when is this going to stop? When is this, when, what, what's, is there a termination of this thing? And it just keeps going on and on and on until finally, you know, one night um, I'm not sleeping. And I, um, we have this little house. We've got, this, we got, a, we got a, a living room that's not the size of that table, uh, maybe two tables. Uh, and there's a, there's a glass window, and it's about 4 o'clock in the morning. And I've got three small girls, and I'm, I'm not sleeping. And I'm pacing in front of that window, and I said, all right, all right, all right, I'll go um, and that's that's what we did. We just said, okay, we can't do this anymore. We weren't fired. We weren't asked. To, it's just, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to fight anyway. But before that, we got to that. R.C. Sproul invited us down for supper. Just me and Susie. We drove down to Orlando or Maitland or wherever that is, and and um, uh, he had supper. It was just Vesta and R.C. and Vesta's mother and uh, me and Susie. And so Vesta and Susie are in the kitchen and. And they're just kind of, you know, doing whatever there it is that they do. And, and I, I don't know where Susie was, actually. I, I was with R.C. It was just R.C. and me in his living room. And I was just spilling my guts. You know, this is awful. You know, I was, um, let's see, I guess I was 34 um, when I was much slimmer and cuter and had more hair. Um, but anyway, uh, I was about 34 years. Maybe I was a little older than that. But anyway, um, um I'm just telling him this and that and the other and, you know, I'm not sleeping at night and this is terrible and yada, 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 all over him. And um, he said, um, here's the punchline. He said, you know what your problem is, buddy? You don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith. What? I have been in the ministry for 10 years. Every October the 31st, we have uh, uh, justification by faith sermons. I have been teaching justification by faith. I have, been, I have been telling people that it's just that and the other. I've been told them what that is not and what it is and how it differs from Roman Catholicism and yada, yada, yada. And there's R.C. Sproul telling me, you don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith. I've been in the ministry for 10 years. I mean, I've been in seminary for th- I've been 13 years. And he looks at me and says, you don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith. You know what? He was right. And it was another two and a half years until I think I understood the doctrine of justification by faith. The point is this, guys. What is it that brought some sanity to my life? Doctrine. A doctrine. A doctrine that does nothing more than help me understand what it is that God has done and what that means to a sinner like me. And then for somebody to build themselves as, well, around here, you know, we don't, we don't bother much with doctrine. And I want to say, well, then you're downright cruel to your people. You must not love them very much if you're not into doctrine around there. Because it is doctrine that simply systematizes what it is that God has done. You know what God has done? He gave the dearest and the best. He's given the most prized possession. So will He not much, will He not now rather much more give you those little things? And do you know what it is that will help you understand what he's done? It's a doctrine. It's a doctrine called the atonement. Well, Jimmy, that's that's for you. Seminary students, you know, you you people, you know, y'all y'all get paid these big bucks to go and you know dot your eyes and cross your T's. If you think that, ladies and gentlemen. You have missed the heart and soul of this book. It is not enough for the Apostle Paul that says, God is love, there's the fact, take it, live with it, do what you can do with it. He goes and says, this God has given His own Son. He did not spare His own Son. Now, can you taste that? Can you taste the sense that you that, that 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 God is God's love towards sinners is constant and it's displayed at its very finest in what he was willing to give? Then why do you lose sleep at night? Because you wonder if what you did at the the office this afternoon is going to disqualify you from heaven. You know why you do that? Because you don't understand the doctrine of the atonement. And that is what's at the heart and soul of verse 32 of Romans 8. Let me say this real quick and and I'll... Finish. Gang, it's not enough simply to have people talk about Jesus died on the cross. That's not enough. Because it's not enough to simply talk about the cross. It's very important what is said about the cross. For instance, can you clearly, readily, easily, Tell me what the term vicarious means. Guys, that's a part of understanding and drinking at the depths of this doctrine that's so important to us. Just knowing how to define the words. A substitutionary atonement that we so that we love. But guys, I'll, let me, and I'll say this, i shut up we don't want to do the work of coming to grips with some some fairly easy terms because i think sometimes i better not say that and the and the losers of of not coming to grips with those terms are you so we um so we lost our temper on the way over here today because some, some Stupid man ran me off the side of the road and I did some things that that I don't want anybody in here to know I did, and some of them have to do with some obscene gestures. And so we lie in the bed tonight and we think could God love. safe? You know, guys, I wish you hadn't have done that. And I, I, I'm glad you're embarrassed about it. Mine embarrasses me too. But God didn't love me because Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me because God Even the ugliness of the offenders can't run him off as ugly as it got, as bad as it was, as embarrassing as as embarrassed as you are, and as little as you want your kids to find out about this it's not going to run him off you're safe uh, we probably ought to. Repent of such a spirit that's still in us, shouldn't we? And then get back to the enjoyment of knowing that my sin is forgiven. How could you know that, Jimmy? I'll tell you why. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Now go enjoy that. Let's quit. Lord Jesus, I do pray that your people will discover the great beauty that is contained in your word. That this is not a holy book for religionists or preachers or the professionals. This is a love letter sent to to assure a bunch of violators that all is well. It's not all. It's not well because we're such great violators. Oh, we're good at that. It's well because of who you are and what you were willing to give to establish an everlasting relationship between you and your people. A, a relationship that will not deteriorate. Uh, uh, will not evaporate because I blew it again today. Lord, give us that great knowledge of your love. And Father, my hope is that a knowledge of that will turn us into people that are more desirous to live like Jesus. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Good night.